0: Hello and welcome to episode 90 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. For today's story, we head to the centre of global football excellence, Yorkshire, home to the mighty Leeds United. The case is today a particularly shocking one which was almost not solved and was only done so using a mix of forensic evidence and good old-fashioned police work. But first, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon As this episode is pre-recorded, as I'm away, I can't thank my new supporters this week, but I do really value your support and I'll give you a shout out on the show next week. So let's put the story in context with a look at what we were listening to at the time, the middle of September 2005. The UK number one was Pussycat Dolls with Don'tcha, with the Kaiser Chiefs' I predict a riot at 20. Kenya West with Gold Digger was number one in the US. And in the Australian album charts, the Black Eyed Peas were number one for September, and most of the year for that matter, with their album Monkey Business. This is the month when Hurricane Rita made landfall in the US, devastating Beaumont, Texas, and portions of southwestern Louisiana. Mandala Airlines Flight 091 crashed into a heavily populated residential area of Sumatra, Indonesia, killing 104 people on board, and at least 39 people on the ground. In the UK, it was cricket mania after winning the Ashes. Those were the days when it was on free TV, and everyone actually seemed to be watching. And the High Court decided that Ian Huntley, serving life imprisonment for the double child murders at Soham three years ago, should serve at least 40 years in prison, before being considered for parole. This ruling is set to keep Huntley behind bars until at least 2042 and the age of 68. I can't believe that anyone thinks for a moment that Huntley won't die in jail. And frankly, good riddance to him. So to today's story, which starts in Yorkshire, North East England, in February 2005. Selby is a town around 15 miles south of York. And on this cold winter's day, the abbey was full as friends and family attended a tearful memorial service for 28-year-old Lindsay Bourne, who was originally from Selby. A murder hunt had begun after a man walking his dog found the first two parts of Lindsay's left leg in the heavily wooded Woodhouse Ridge, Leeds, four months earlier. She had been identified by a tattoo on her leg depicting two cherries on a green stalk. No further body parts had been found and detectives were still trying to establish Lindsay's final movements prior to her murder. They suspected she may have been killed by someone she met whilst working as a sex worker, on the streets of Holbrook, Leeds, in the final months of her life. Her family had been shocked to learn after her death that she had turned to sex work to fund her drug habit. Lindsay's grieving mum, Karen Pawson, said that Lindy was a wonderful daughter and granddaughter, loved by everyone who was going through a difficult time due to her recent addiction to drugs. Karen said on leaving the Abbey, It was a lovely service, a lovely celebration of Lindsay's life. I'm really grateful to everybody and all her friends that came. It was really nice. Earlier, she'd appealed for help in finding her daughter's remains. Selby is Lindsay's hometown, where she grew up and where many of her friends and family still live, she said. Holding this service is part of our grieving process as a family. It makes her loss to us real in other people's eyes. It humanises who she was and that she is beautiful and special and loved by us all. We are desperate to find Lindsay, so she can be laid to rest. I cannot urge people strongly enough to please get in touch if they think they can help. As a family, we need to know where she is and what happened to her. At the service, she read a eulogy, and the congregation sang All Things Bright and Beautiful and Amazing Grace. The family put together a CD of songs which were played, including Robbie Williams' Angels, China in Your Hands by Tapau and Westlife's I Believe in Angels and images and photographs of Lindsay throughout her life were projected onto a large screen in the Abbey. Detective Superintendent Bill Shackleton who was leading the investigation attended the service which he said had been very moving. He told the local newspaper the Yorkshire Evening Post I hope the family can take comfort from the service the people who've been here and from what the vicar had to say, and he made yet another appeal for help for the public. Can anybody with any information at all that may possibly help us to find the whereabouts of Lindsay's remains, or can help us piece together what happened to her, please come forward? He reiterated previous appeals, saying that Lindsay had been living in Leeds on and off for the past 12 months, and had last been seen around mid-September in Leeds City Centre. She was wearing knee-length tan-coloured boots, a dark blue denim mini-skirt, a red belt with a double buckle, a black backless top and a PVC three-quarter length black jacket. He added that Lindsay had striking dyed blonde hair which reached her waist with the roots showing. But privately, he suspected that a local man was responsible for Lindsay's murder and he was still hopeful that the highly publicised memorial event may have pricked someone's conscience and it may have been the catalyst to encourage this man to give himself up. The police inquiry had been a particularly difficult one due to the erratic nature of Lindsay's life when she died. As a heroin addict and a sex worker, she had disappeared a number of times previously with buyers of the sexual services she sold and then returned a few days later when they'd had a falling out. As police couldn't be sure of the exact time of her disappearance, they missed that key initial time when vital intelligence can often be gained by house-to-house inquiries, But police finally got a break when three weeks after finding the leg, someone who could well have been Lindsay was seen with a man by two women who were sure about the date as it was one of their son's birthdays. They'd seen a man carrying a red-stained sack who had scratches on his face and the women even joked that if a body was found nearby they knew that he would be the one who'd committed the murder. The description they gave enabled detectives to produce an excellent e-fit. And on the very same day the e-fit and appeal was released and published in the media, detectives had a surprise result. At 3.30pm that day, Stuart Burns of Holt Park, Leeds, walked into his local police station and told officers, I might be that man you are looking for. Detectives were used to all sorts of attention seeking people turning up claiming responsibility for high profile crimes, so they were keeping a very open mind about the man who now sat before them. He seemed a likeable, responsible man who told them he'd come to them having seen the fit. But he was very clear that he was not responsible for Lindsay's death, and his story seemed plausible. It appeared to check out, and the view was that he was innocent. He explained the scratches on his face as he'd been on a night out, got drunk and got into a row with a lady who'd scratched his face. He was a painter and decorator and his friend was decorating so he'd been taking paint and dust sheets over but en route he decided it was too heavy and dumped it near where the ladies thought they'd seen a man with Lindsay and the stains they thought might have been blood were actually red paint. He was released by police as they had a good look at what he had told them, but as the detectives delved deeper into the detail, there were signs that maybe his story didn't quite add up. Could he actually be responsible for Lindsay's death? For example, despite their inquiries, police could not find any painting equipment in the woods, where Stuart had said they would find them. There was no record of how he received the scratches on his face either, as there had been no reports of a fight in the city centre and there wasn't any CCTV footage of the incident. A workmate said that Burns had no scratches on September 9th when he dropped him off at home, but when he picked him up the next morning, he was in a foul temper, full of booze, and with fresh scratch marks on his face. Could it have been Lindsay who scratched his face as she fought for her life? Suddenly, it seemed to detectives a distinct possibility. And their inquiries didn't stop there an expert was able to match pollen found on boots that Stuart Burns handed in to police to the type of pollen found in the area where Lindsay's body parts were discovered. Detectives talked to his friends and colleagues and discovered he was normally a pretty straightforward guy, just living his life. But then around the time of Lindsay's disappearance, people had noticed a real change in his character and he'd become erratic and short-tempered, which wasn't like him at all. With the information they had, Detectives decided to move quickly and arrest Burns on the suspicion of murdering Lindsay and his home address became a crime scene. As forensic teams carried out their work, they noticed how fresh and new everything was in the house which appeared quite unusual for a single man of 30. The steps had been painted and laminate flooring put down. It was almost as if it was too clean but this didn't necessarily mean that he'd killed Lindsay here. And that was the overall problem with his story. Although it didn't quite make sense on a number of levels, proving it was difficult. Was it all just coincidence? Detectives didn't think so, but it could just about be plausible. For example, he didn't have transport, and he lived a good six miles from where the body parts were found. Burns kept saying, How on earth would I get the body there when I don't drive and I have no transport? But when detectives quizzed him on how he got around and whether or not he used taxis, he was happy to tell them which taxi driver he used. The taxi driver was tracked down and actually recalled spending time with Burns as Burns had asked if he could put a bag in the boot as it smelt a little. It was a bit whiffy. Clearly on hearing this, detectives were suddenly very interested. Burns had told the taxi driver that he shot at weekends and it was a bag of game, some rabbits. But unfortunately for him, the driver was a keen shooter himself and engaged Stuart in a conversation about shotguns so his encounter with Stuart was firmly fixed in his mind. But this still wasn't enough to secure a conviction. Detectives needed more and luckily the break they were looking for quickly followed when blood was found in the hall cupboard by forensic teams at his house. Detectives weren't sure whether the blood was Lindsay's or not but then again they reasoned. Neither was Stuart Burns. Detectives decided to take a chance and see if when they planted the seed, his reaction would lead to him confessing the crime. So they told him at the end of a long day of questioning that blood had been found, leaving him to stew ahead of questioning the next day. And when they turned up the next morning, bingo. He was desperate to tell them that he was responsible for killing Lindsay and began to tell the astonished detectives the whole story. He began by saying he met Lindsay after coming out of a nightclub. They got talking, as you do, and he offered to walk her to a taxi rank. She flagged down a taxi to go back to his flat, and he thought they were going for a nightcap and a chat. He did not realise that she was a sex worker when she held a taxi to go home with him, and he did not anticipate sex because of his drunken state, and thought they would just chat and have some fun. He told detectives it was only back in the house when she pulled his trousers down and began reeling off prices that he realised she was a professional sex worker. Burns said he felt degraded, that he'd been duped and that he just wanted to get out of his flat. He said that Lindsay then tried to steal his money and they ended up in a tussle. He told how in anger he had grabbed her by the hair to usher her out but she wasn't having this. Lindsay had scratched his face in her defence as he struggled with her. He said that because of his drunken state he stumbled and ended up on top of her with his arm on her neck as he tried to calm her down. He wasn't quite sure how long they stayed in that position but eventually he let her go when he heard a grunting noise and then he realised that she had stopped breathing. Burns continued that when he'd realised she was dead he'd tried to resuscitate Lindsay without success. He said, It all happened that quickly. It was like an out-of-body experience. Like somebody else was doing it. It was weird. When asked why he didn't call for an ambulance or any other assistance, Burns said that he thought about it, but made the conscious decision not to do so because he feared the consequences. He said he felt like a zombie, shaking and sweating. The next morning he was picked up by a workmate, the one who reported the scratches, and left the body in his home as he went to work. But after just a couple of hours, he just couldn't concentrate and decided to head back, cut up the body and dispose of it. Telling colleagues he was feeling unwell, he used a saw to perform the hideous task of cutting up Lindsay's decomposing body in his bath, dividing her into eight pieces before taking the parts to overgrown woodland near Meanwood, Leeds for burial. He also disposed of her clothes and his own, and he'd thrown tiles from his bathroom and redecorated most of his flat including laying new laminated flooring in the box room where Lindsay's body had lain for some hours. The two detectives who questioned Burns described this day to the Guardian newspaper. One said, Burns had considered calling the police but ruled it out. He realised afterwards that that was the wrong decision. If he's killed this lady and rung the police, that's one scenario. If you wait until morning and tell them, that's another but chopping up the body and disposing of it is as bad as it gets as far as sentencing. The other added, I remember it was the day of the 7 7 bombings. It was lovely and sunny. We went to Brian's fish and chip shop in Headingley and sat there in stunned silence. In the interview situation, you're a police officer, you're professional. We came out of the room and put him in the custody area. You wait. You don't want the cell door to slam and for him to hear you say, bloody hell, at what you've heard. There are people who confess to things they haven't done, so you still have to investigate it. We had to go through this horrific account of the dismembering of Lindsay's body. Part of our strategy is keeping things back that only the offender would know, and we had the issue of how he got this body down to Woodhouse Ridge. It turned out he'd taken smaller sections, the limbs and the head, in a holdel on the bus. For the torso he'd ordered the taxi, which was his downfall. He didn't like us going through it again though, he got very aggressive. I then had to sit and plead with him to tell us where the rest of Lindsay's body was buried. We had to ask him to give her family closure and tell him how grateful they'd be. Really, I was thinking, I don't want to sit in here and talk to you anymore. He looked terrible when we interviewed him. His eyes were sunken, he hadn't slept. It would be interesting to talk to him now, but I imagine that what he felt afterwards was that he'd offloaded. After all, Stuart Burns didn't go out that fateful evening with the intention of murdering anyone. Two days after his arrest, Burns agreed to take police to Woodhouse Ridge to point out where the rest of her remains were buried, heavily wrapped in polythene, and following this, Stuart Burns was charged with murder, where he was unanimously found guilty. Sentencing father of three Burns, trial judge Justice Simon said he considered him a dangerous man who might have got away with his crime but for a dog digging up part of Lindsay's leg. He ordered that 30-year-old Burns should serve a minimum of 19 years in prison, lest the period he'd spent in remand in custody, warning him that the parole board would not direct his release until satisfied that you no longer need to be confined for the protection of the public. He said that what happened between Burns and Lindsay in his flat in Holtdale Place, Cookridge Leeds in the early hours of September the 10th last year may never be known. But he said that after the murder, Burns' actions showed a cold and calculating ruthlessness. He added, Apart from the barbarity itself, the cruel indignity to your victim showed a complete disregard to the natural feelings of her family. After watching the murderer jailed for life at Leeds Crown Court, Lindsay's mum, Karen Pawson, was appalled that he'd shown no guilt or remorse for what he had done, while they'd have to live with her loss forever. She added, Lindsay gave him no provocation but he strangled her and watched while she lay on the floor struggling for breath. He could have called for help but instead he left her to die. Then he dismembered her precious body and disposed of her hoping she would never be found. We would always love and miss Lindsay. She did not deserve to have her life cut short. No punishment can bring her back to her family. We will be haunted with these memories for the rest of our lives. We started this podcast with the memorial service for Lindsay. Then a couple of weeks after Burns had been found guilty, the family and friends were able to have a full funeral and say goodbye to their treasured daughter. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Although in the podcast we've heard about a number of people who choose to do sex work, and that's their call, we've heard of others like Lindsay who choose this work to fund their drug addiction. And it was this work that put Lindsay in the position where she met and was murdered by Stuart Burns. If we take his story at face value, which isn't easy, as he repeatedly lied, the question I keep coming back to is why was he so offended when Lindsay offered him sex for money. Why the outrage and the anger? It is, I think, a little like our surprise response to so-called attractive men like Hugh Grant using sex workers, when we have this view that as they are attractive, they shouldn't need to. I'm not quite sure I understand this line of thinking, but Stuart Burns clearly felt that this business arrangement was some personal attack on his level of attractiveness, and he He couldn't understand and felt bad that this woman would not just like to sleep with him without money. As we constantly see on this podcast, it is often surprising just how strongly people can react to their egos being dented, especially when under the influence of drink or drugs. But whatever the reasons for his violent attack, why didn't he call for assistance when he knew that Lindsay was not breathing? He could then have been in court for manslaughter. And as for the decision to swap the body, well, just taking that course of action hopefully means that Stuart Burns will never be released. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please join us on Facebook to discuss this story and every other aspect of UK true crime. We've got 1,300 members, all sorts of conversations, and you're very, very welcome. To support the show and enable me to keep producing it weekly, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you'll find 17 full-length bonus episodes, number 18, coming in August, along with other exclusive content. So that is all from me for now. So until we speak again, take it easy, cheerio, and remember, stay classy.